The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, November 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. First Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. Read spiritual experts there. These are their spiritual experts. They called for them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel... Do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. It almost sounds like a, like a Christmas song, isn't it? Like five golden mice. Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So while we didn't see this explicitly last week in chapter 5, we get the sense here that the plague has gone beyond the three cities mentioned in chapter 5, and it has gone to all five. Verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, that is two cows who have just given birth to calves and they're still nursing those calves. Take two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch." If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, which is a city just across the border into Israel, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. And what they're saying there is, look, you people seem to be convinced that this is the work of the Lord but the spiritual experts, we may not be so convinced yet. Let's put one more fleece out there if you understand the metaphor. Let's, let's see what happens if we try this thing with the cows and their calves. Let's see what, let's see what takes place. And if, if they go in the direction opposite of their calves, then we know that there's something really, really huge going on, and it is the Lord, and, and we'll give the box back. But if not, I mean, it's a nice box, all right, solid gold top, that's got to be worth a lot. Gold-plated, I mean, it's a nice box. Let's, let's keep it if we can. So that's where they are. And then verse 10 happens. The men did what these spiritual experts advised, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors, 
And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing or moaning and groaning as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, which means this was in May at some point. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, that's important, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, and the Levites, pause, should know what to do with the ark. You read Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Levites know what they should do with the ark. And they don't do it, which makes complete sense out of what happens when we get to verse 19. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them up upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Now, I won't take too much time on this, but isn't it interesting that the five lords, the, the five rulers or governors of the entire land of Philistia, had a chance to watch the people of God worship him in, in a way that they have never gotten to see before. Here are these governing rulers and authorities of an unbelieving nation getting a chance to witness worship to the one true God like they never have before. Never underestimate what God has purposed and planned to come on the backside of some of the most horrific things we have ever suffered. Even slavery as we commemorate the 400th year of the first Africans coming to this land in chains. Slavery is evil, it is awful, it is wicked, it is damnable, it is everything and deserves all of the condemnation we pour upon it. But as Christians, you must never lose sight of the fact that God can take even the most evil things men do and cause them to work for good. Do not be easily offended by that, because I will, I will really offend you now if you were offended by that. You cannot be a Christian if you lose your confidence in the idea that God can take the most evil things men do and cause them to work for good. What do you think happened at the cross? Was there ever anything more wicked than the betrayal, brutal beating and defilement and murder of the Son of God who is perfect and pure in every way? Have we ever offended and marred so beautiful and so perfect and so pure of a life? And is that not the one event that God has used to bring about the most good into this world of evil? You better believe it is. So ask me as a black man standing before you if I believe that God can bring good out of slavery. 100% yes, I do. I believe he has. I want to clarify, did I at any point call slavery good? Okay, I just want to make sure that we're clear on that. 
But I am unashamed to tell you I believe God has brought great good out of that evil, just like he did with the cross. You and I experience spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood today across ethnic lines that would be less likely and maybe even impossible if it weren't for the particular way that God chose to to mix things up. We condemn and renounce the evil. We understand that God is able to work all things out for good according to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I make no apologies for believing that. Fuels my life. Fuels my passion for God. Fuels me. Not ashamed to stand next to my white wife in Virginia where that relationship would have been illegal less than 60 years ago. And I will never turn my back on the good relationships God has given me with people who look different on the surface simply because I have a bunch of social engineers today telling me that we ought to split ourselves up into teams on the basis of skin. You will never get me to do that. And I will fight till my death to protect this church from going down that path. Back to the text. I really mean it. I don't know where I am. (laughs) Verse 19. Verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords. Both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day. That is at the time of the writing of 1 Samuel. It is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. We're not told explicitly in the text. It might have been the Levites. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So, ironically, ironically, they do the exact same thing the Philistines were doing. They send the ark away. Watch. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Yerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Yerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Yerim, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Father, we ask in our brief time remaining that you would help us to hear your voice clearly uh, and let us follow you more faithfully and let us with grace and compassion reach out to a world that desperately needs to hear about your son, Jesus. We ask that in his name now and everybody said, Amen. Let's look at some of the questions in this passage beginning in chapter 6, verse 2. There the Philistines ask, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? And 
it sounds very similar to the very same question they asked back in chapter 5, verse 8. Look back there. There they asked the question, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? But did you notice the subtle yet very important difference? Chapter 5, verse 8, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Chapter 6, verse 2, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? For the first time in our story, the Philistines, these unbelieving pagans, have referred to God by his covenant name, Yahweh, the name he revealed to his people Israel. Now, they're still pagans. They're, they're as pagan as all get out. That hasn't changed. But they are beginning to think about and speak about the Lord in ways that are more consistent with revealed truth. You've seen this happen, have you not? Maybe in your own life, maybe in the lives of others around you. As you pray for people, as you seek to help them understand the ways of God and the truth of Jesus Christ and what he's done, you've seen people who are still not believers yet, but they're beginning to ask sincere questions and to think about God in ways and speak about perhaps God in ways that are more consistent with revealed truth. Have you seen it? That's what's happening here with the Philistines. You know, it usually takes time. In this case, it was seven months that the ark of the Lord was among them and the presence of God among them, yes, through a heavy hand, but in a special way to reveal God to them. But it usually takes time. I like to put it this way. I, I like to say that genuine Christian faith tends to come out of the crockpot more than the microwave. It usually takes time. And we need to keep that in mind as we are thinking about and praying for those in our lives, our family members, our friends, co-workers, neighbors, those who have not yet come to saving faith in the Lord. We want to remember that and pray for them, that God would continue to reveal himself to them. And, and as we seek to help them come to faith in Jesus, we pray that God would use us as well. That at times God would be able to reveal himself to them in light of what we have said and done and and at times, if we're just honest, we're, we're praying that God would reveal himself to them in spite of what we have said or done. Because our witness is good here at this moment and, and poor at another moment. And we, we trust that God's able to use that and to still reveal himself sufficiently so that they would be saved. So we, we, we pray that way. Lord, help, help us to do that. To trust that you will continue to work through our simultaneously urgent but patient message and approach. We ask that in your name, Jesus, amen. Let me move really quickly to our second question. Uh, the Philistines are asking sincere questions here, and the next one they ask is in chapter 6, verse 4. If you look at that question there, they say, after hearing about this guilt offering, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? Now, there's a lot to that question when you consider who's asking it. Again, these are pagans. These are people who are hardcore unbelievers. They, they, they worship false gods that you can actually see. They have temples to these gods. This is as pagan as you get. And yet, if you notice what they say, they say, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They do not say, what is the guilt offering that we should return with him? Did you catch that? See, if you remember from last week, as we went through chapter 5, they made very little, if any, distinction between that box that they took home with them and God himself. Might as well have been the same things as far as they were concerned. We've got a temple for our God, 
And now we've captured Israel's God, and we're going to put him right next to Dagon. Box, God, same thing. We just captured Israel's God. But no, no, that was not the case. And they had begun to recognize this. You see it again in the way that they're speaking. What is the offering that we shall return to him? Because clearly, there is a God who is represented by this ark, but we did not capture him. He's obviously still on the loose. And so as we send this box back to him, there is a God on the other side of that that we cannot see who will receive it from us. And what should we send in order that he might actually receive this and do something about what's plaguing us? Again, still pagans, but just like some of our friends and relatives and and people we're concerned about and praying for, starting to think and speak more in line with revealed truth. And so, they do the best they can under the guidance of their spiritual advisors, and they they pack a Christmas stocking for God with golden mice and golden tumors, and no, you you understand that's a a joke. But, But they send this thing off, and it eventually makes its way back to Beth Shemesh. Now, The second thing I find remarkable about this question that they ask about the the guilt offering is the fact that even though they're pagans, they instinctively understand that there's real guilt between them and God, and their guilt creates a debt. They owe something to God, and this offering is something they are offering to God as a way to take care of that guilt and that debt. We owe God something. I have discovered that in my, in my sharing of the gospel message with people who don't believe in Jesus yet, this is one of the best open doors for me to walk through to help them understand the gospel. Everyone I've talked to understands instinctively that in their relationships with other people, if they offend someone, they owe them something for having done so. And I'm not talking about the excesses of our grievance culture where everyone's offended by everything today. I'm talking about legitimate offenses. I've actually done something that God himself would consider an offense, a, a sin for which I am morally culpable. There is a debt created because of that guilt. Guilt and debt go hand in hand. In fact, if you know German, the word for guilt and debt is the exact same word. Right? Jesus links our sin and guilt with debt. In that parable he tells about the two servants who owe the king a certain thing or a servant who owes another servant something. He, he talks about forgiveness and the parable he, he gives us at that point to explain it is one of debt being forgiven. These things are inextricably linked. And people understand this instinctively. If I've done something really bad and, and it comes between me and that person and that guilt presents a debt, that debt is something owed, I, I must offer something to the person. I won't name the basketball player, but there's a retired basketball player who, who was guilty of committing adultery against his wife. His wife found out and almost instinctively he just decided I, I've got to, got to offer something. He, he bought her, it was either $400,000 or a $4 million diamond ring. But obviously that's not enough. Right, there, there's, we understand I, I owe something, we even speak that way, I owe you an apology. Did you realize an apology? When we say I owe you an apology, that word was carefully chosen to show that there is a debt here because of my guilt, I owe you an apology and I offer that apology as a guilt offering. 
But like Jenny Lind will tell you from The Greatest Showman, it's never enough. Never, never. That song is in my head. You know that when you do something that awful and that wicked, there is no offering you could present that will actually be enough to pay for that guilt. A guilt offering is needed, but here's what needs to happen. The debt doesn't go away. It needs to be paid. But what happens is the offended party, the offended party says, I release you from what you owe and I will forgive that debt. I will release you from it and I will assume the debt unto myself. That's what forgiveness is doing. The debt doesn't go away. It must be paid. Someone must take up that debt and assume it. I wish our nation could figure this out. And I'll leave that alone. But the debt doesn't go away. The person forgiving the guilty party assumes the debt unto themselves. Listen, this is what Jesus does for us. What is the guilt offering we should return to the Lord? What are you going to do? Offer yourself as a guilt offering? You're going to realize that there's real guilt between you and God once you start to think clearly. And you're going to say, you know what, God? I know I've been bad for a few years. I know I've been bad for a few decades. I've hurt some people. I've done some things that are against your law. I, I know I've sinned. I know there's guilt. I know there's debt. I know I owe you. But here, I, I, I offer myself. From this point forward, I offer a new, better version of me. I offer you the rest of my life, the rest of my days, the rest of my years. I give you me. Never enough. You know what God does for us? He says, hold your mice, hold your, hold your version of your golden mice and golden tumors I have chosen a guilt offering for you. Whew. Oh man, I'm about to get happy. I have chosen a guilt offering for you. See, I am going to forgive your debt. I am going to assume payment for that debt unto myself. I am going to take your debt unto myself. I am going to choose my son to be your guilt offering. And you know that God will accept that guilt offering because he chose it. And Jesus is perfect. He can put himself there between us and God and say, I give you me, Father. How confident do you feel about your own goodness? I mean, yes, all right, so you're better than me. I mean, that and a bus ticket will get you on a bus. You can't walk into heaven like that. Now, we need the perfect son of God to stand between us and the living God before whom no one can stand. We need, we need Jesus' perfection. We need God's willingness to forgive and to take unto himself the debt that we owe to him. That's what he does. This is the good news. It leads me to that last question that we see, we see at the end here of the passage in chapter 6, verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Well, the correct answer is, no one. Now I got Alicia Keys in my head. No, no one is able to stand before the Lord. Everywhere in this passage, I mean, in fact, this is the main point 
of the entire narrative from the moment the ark steps on the scene in in chapter 4. All the way up to this point, there is one main point, and it is this. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Ever since the ark steps on the scene, all we see are people falling. Chapter 4, verse 10. There was a very great slaughter that day. Israel makes the mistake of bringing the ark into the battle as a good luck charm. And what we see is 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Chapter 4, verse 18, as soon as the messenger mentions the ark of God being captured, Eli fell over backward in his seat. Chapter 5, verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day to look upon their new trophy in the temple of Dagon, what they found instead, behold, Dagon had, everybody, fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The ark goes on tour throughout the territory of the Philistines and everywhere people are falling almost indiscriminately into death, disease, plague, everywhere in the land of of the Philistines. And then as the the, the ark gets back to Israel in Beth Shemesh again, 70 men are struck down and they fall dead before the Lord. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one. Except people who fall into a very exceptional category. Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 through 4. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Here's the problem. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8 and 9. You and I serve a king who sits on the throne of judgment and who winnows all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm chapter 130, verse 3 through 4 If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If the Lord should mark iniquities, that is, keep a permanent record of them that would always be able to be pulled up and used against us, who could stand? But thanks be to God, Isaiah speaking in advance, speaking prophetically, looking forward to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our true and better guilt offering, said this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and 6. But he, that is Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. All. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, you want to know what he's done with your iniquities, believer? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is not simply marking iniquities of sinners. He is moving them and laying them upon his son. 
Thanks be to God. And because of the grace of God in the cross, you and I can say along with Jude verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done. You are wonderful, you are wise, you are merciful, you love us. Well, I can't even figure out why you love us to the extent that you do and the way that you do. You have gone out of your way and moved heaven and earth and sent your son to take unto himself the debt that we owe to you because of our sin. You have chosen and presented our guilt offering and we know that you will accept him. He has taken the punishment for our sins and you raised Jesus from the dead so that we could know beyond the shadow of a doubt that his sacrifice for us on the cross is acceptable to you and is enough for you. And we thank you for the assurance that we have today in Jesus' name. For those of us who have been justified by faith, we now know that we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ and access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Lord, thank you so much for grace to stand. And we ask you to help us remember this always in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you again. Thank you again. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodland given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www dot redemptionhill dot com